0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi Tuhi Tāmaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The daughter of a South African freedom fighter and an accountant, the writer Sasonki Imsamang was born in exile and has lived on three continents. She has called the dream of freedom a kind of home for her, an idea beautifully expanded upon in her memoir, Always Another Country, a memoir of exile and home. Now based in Perth, Mang has also published The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela, which charts the-
1: Hi everyone. Hi everyone. Hi! (laughs) So I'm going to read from a chapter in Always Another Country called Why I Write. When you write in this modern age for the public, when you write and you look like me and believe, as I do, that you are as good as anyone else, then you draw all the venom and all the hatred and you can either let it poison you or drink it as the goddesses drank ambrosia. At first I wrote for the clicks and the attention, but that soon passed. I began to write for posterity, so that S, my daughter, might know me differently, so that E, my son, might boast to his friends one day and say about his mother she was a writer at first i wrote to make mummy and baba proud so i also wrote i guess out of a certain sentimental yes we canness i write now for slightly different reasons i write because i am an african woman who is literate and there is no diminishing what this means in a context in which so many others are not i write to escape my children and to find my peace with them I write sometimes just to hear them say, are you still writing a book? How many pages is it, mama? I write because Africans and women and humans who have been considered less than others have always had stories and imaginations to take us out of the impossibility of the situations in which we have found ourselves stranded. I write because Simpiwe Dana sings and because Brenda Fasi is dead. In the face of the certainty of death, what else can I do? Where else can I go but the page when I am overcome by the knowledge that yesterday's songs were sung by women who died because they worked too much and lived in a world that was too hard and yet their melodies were so soft. What else can I do but write when I know that life is not just breath, it is also voice. I write because I cannot paint and I cannot sing. Words are my brush and my warbled song. I have written on the margins of every book I have ever loved So I write because I read. I write because I'm black, that peculiar word that is more than the brown of my skin. Black is a solid mass of many shades that stand together facing the future. It is a whole. Black is an equation defying even Einstein's brilliant, even as it is nothing, nothing at all. I write for myself because women seldom have spaces for themselves and writing is space. It takes up space, it creates space, it gives me space. I write because writing is solitary and women are seldom alone with just their thoughts. Their responsibilities intrude. There is this to be done and that to be paid in those moments when it is just you and your words are rare and all the more beautiful. I write because South Africa was liberated and she is not yet free. I write because I've been let down and sometimes I write because I do not know the answer that I am hoping someone else might search with me. I write because when I was in high school, my father marked up my essays with a red pen. I write because my mother taught me how to spell, just like she taught me that the only true thing that counts, uh, which is just like she taught me the only true thing that counts, which is that you are always only one breath away from death. I write because, as Nikki Giovanni has said about love, there is nothing for me but to write.
2: And I want to start by saying I think you're also right because you were born into a great big story. One of the great stories of struggle of the 20th century.
1: Absolutely. Sorry, I'm going to deal with this earring situation. <laughs> okay. We'll we were a bit one.
2: worried that if she didn't wear her earrings, you wouldn't tell, tell her us part. apart.
1: Tell us apart, The baldies. <laughs> 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 I think you can keep it straight. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. I happen to have born, been born in pretty extraordinary times uh, and so in some ways uh, I had no choice but to write this book uh, and I had no choice but to be a little observer in my family, yeah. yeah.
2: And you were also born into a, a family of storytellers, <laughs> weren't you?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Our house was always full of uh, storytellers. Um, my my father also comes from a family that is a long line of uh, politically involved people Uh, and so i think he saw himself as someone who had no choice but to be interested in politics and if there's anything that um, interests me more than stories i think it's it's probably politics i'm a profoundly invested and engaged in politics so i'm waiting for the election (laughs) outcomes in Australia right now. So I haven't been in Australia long, but I'm already addicted to the sort of, the the cut and thrust of what's happening and who's in charge. And I think that stuff uh, uh, matters uh, very much, unfortunately. Um, And it seems that the poorer the choice of our leaders, the more it seems to matter, actually, yeah. And you guys are lucky.
2: (laughs) So many memoirs, are, are about pulling apart childhood in a way that, that sort of breaks down one or other or both of your parents and blames them for whatever situation the writer feels in or whatever drove them to write. But this is one of the most profound love letters to parents I think I've ever read. And it, is that an intentional...?
1: Um, it didn't start out that way. So I I wrote this book uh, as a love letter to South Africa, first and foremost. Uh, And I wrote this book because in South Africa we have this very large national character called Nelson Mandela uh, with whom we are all obsessed, uh, whom we alternately love greatly and criticize profoundly, a new generation of South Africans are asking a lot of questions about Nelson Mandela's legacy that people outside South Africa would probably be very surprised to hear about. Uh, but he means very much to us. And so if you look in the uh, biography section of any South African bookshop, it's full of Mandela biographies, you know, short takes on Mandela, pictures of Mandela. Everything is Mandela. There's Mandela leggings. Um, so lots of we have this obsession with Nelson Mandela, and what it has meant is that uh, we don't have a lot of stories other than stories about big men. Yeah, and he's a pretty good big man to have stories about. But the other big men in our history, Cecil John Rhodes, uh, Favut, there's lots of stories about the big men who have occupied our history, and very few small stories, uh, and less uh, attention paid to women's stories. And so in on the one hand, I wanted to write a story about these small little people who were thrown into extraordinary times even though they didn't do anything particularly special. And so I had to grapple firstly with the idea that I was going to write about myself um, because that felt you know, self-indulgent and then like, I'm not that old, so. What, am I, what have I done to deserve, you know what I mean? Like, so I had to put all that, si- uh, that stuff aside. And the reason I was able to was because it felt like an important story to tell in South Africa that we hadn't told about ourselves yet, which was about exile children, which was about little girls uh, who had nothing to do with the struggle, but were caught up in um, sort of history's uh, momentum,
2: yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I, I mean, I read, in a slightly odd way. I read the name, I read the book, and then today, just before I came in, I read the title, which is Always Another Country. And I realized today, having read the book a couple of weeks ago, that it describes you. (laughs) Yes, it does. tell, Tell me about that life where you're always in another country, but your imagination is fully In South Africa. Yeah,
1: it was. Our imagination was always fully in South Africa. We we called South Africa home, even though we were born outside South Africa. So my father left South Africa in uh, the early 1960s, uh, left and went to Moscow, and did revolutionary things all over the place. Uh, And then I was born in Zambia. Um, My mother uh, was a, 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 a plucky, remarkable, independent woman, uh, which you kind of had to be if you were going to marry a freedom fighter. Um, and and I think there was a certain point in my parents' uh, lives where my mother realized that this guy uh, who, with whom uh, she was very much in love, they have a wonderful love story. Like, their relationship is hilarious. Um, but that this guy was never going to be that focused on... Um, making things stable. <laughs> uh, so that was gonna have to be her job. Uh, and so we moved around quite a lot. Uh, but when we moved to Canada, it was because uh, my mother thought it would be a good idea for us to have passports of some kind. And, um, and so we, you know, we moved to Canada. So we lived in Zambia, and then we lived in Kenya, and then we moved to Canada. Uh, we got citizenship. But it was also very clear that when we lived in Canada, our lives, uh, it was the first time that we were not the majority in in terms of our skin color, uh, and we were of an age where those things really mattered to to you. Uh, And my mother quickly engineered uh, and got her husband into progressively better jobs. So by the time I'm 13, 14, we're now becoming like a proper middle-class family. And so my dad got a job in Kenya that took us back Uh, which was great, which means that of my childhood years, I only spent four years in a place where I wasn't the the majority. And what that means for your sense of self-esteem and assurance and all of that stuff, it it means everything. Uh, So we moved back to Kenya, and then Nelson Mandela was freed in 1990, and I was 17, and I went home so quickly. (laughs) I was home in a flash, um, and it was wonderful. And then shortly thereafter, the family moved back. So, so when my father left, he was 21, and when he returned, he was 53. So he hadn't seen anyone in all those years. Um, so it was a remarkable time.
2: But even in Kenya, you're on the same continent, but you're in a different country.
1: Different country. And I remember we used to get these audio tapes would be smuggled out of South Africa and they would have uh, not audio tapes, video tapes, VHS tapes. Young people don't know about that. VHS tapes and they would be smuggled out and we would play them and they would have like Um, South African music, uh, you know, pop stars in South Africa, Brenda Fassi and all these names. And so we felt like we were able to keep up a little bit, but they were rare. You know, you'd get that like once every six months, uh, you know, if you could, but yeah, very much a different country, different context. Uh, And so finally being able to go home and meet your cousins and people you've never met before, grandparents, uh, who you look like, but you've never seen them before, which is a strange feeling. Uh, it was very wonderful.
2: So, you you were how old then?
1: I was 17 you... the first time I met my grand my family. Yeah.
2: So you were 17 and you'd built up this place and these people in your head. What was that like?
1: Um, it was very beautiful. Uh, it was uh, and also very funny, right? Because we. Uh, those you know, black South Africans who were raised in exile were very arrogant, right? We were just the most special people in our heads, yeah? <laughs> we were like these anointed ones, and then we were, when freedom came, we were gonna go home and we were gonna run the country. We, were, we called ourselves a government-in-waiting. I mean, a lot of the arrogance that you witness today is very much, comes from that ridiculous thought, right? Uh, but it, we couldn't have been free if we didn't, have that sense of, massive sense of ego, right? So it worked for a while. Uh, so we, my cousins and I, my, we have some cousins, eh? African cousins, so we grew up together out in exile. So we come home and we are just spoiling for a fight. We wanna fight some white people, you know? So we just like land in Joburg looking, for trouble, right? And so we go to a cafe and we found it. I mean, it was easy to find, right? <laughs> and so I write about this in the book this, this uh, you know, our fabulous first night in Johannesburg where we found uh, a waitress who, had, who um, had a cup of water and there was a, a man, a busker on the street, an old black man, and she throws the water in his face and she did it in front of us. <laughs> right? The fight of your life right so we we and they didn't know who we were they didn't know what to make of us are they american where you know where are they from and we have this huge fight in which they're accusing us of being outsiders who have no idea what's happening in south africa and of course they're right uh, and of course we're also right and so part of what i'm always interested in is the multiple ways in which many people are often right and then you still uh, have to come to some kind of res- resolution about those things uh, so it was um it was it was a very dramatic uh, return home i then went and met my grandfather for the first time which was an amazing feeling and i remember standing on the porch as we left uh the visit it was two hours and he told these amazing stories about how the policeman would come and knock looking for my father and my father had not been able had just left right he couldn't say where you were going otherwise you would get uh, you know, your family member's in a lot of trouble. And so my grandfather didn't know where he, his son was. And this policeman would come knocking and say, and he said after 10, and so he said after a while, the guy and him just became friends and he'd be like, oh, hi, and he'd sit down. And <laughs> they'd have tea and he'd ask him questions that he couldn't answer and that was that. And he said, one day, 10 years after your father had left, the, the man came in, he was very agitated and he threw this uh, photograph and it was your father. And he said, I was so excited to know that my son was still alive, and yet I couldn't give away that it was my son. And so he said, he sat there, and he said, this is him, isn't it? And, and my grandfather said, I don't know who that is. And inside he was like, I'm so glad he's alive. So it was a beautiful, um, it was a beautiful reunion. And as I left, I was, I was 17, and when my father left, he was 19. And so he said, my grandfather came up to me and he stood beside me like this and he said, the last time I saw your father, he was exactly your age and I was looking at his back the way I'm looking at your back now and I never saw him again. It was very powerful, very beautiful. It was an amazing, amazing homecoming. Yeah.
2: We we talk a lot about the psychological impact on people of imprisonment. Do you think there's a, An impact on people
1: who are in exile? Um, There was definitely an impact on people who who were in exile. I think leaving home is a a difficult thing. My sisters and I were lucky because we never left. We were born in exile, uh, so there was nothing to miss. There's a longing, but I think that's different from missing something that you physically know what you're missing. Uh, And of course my sisters and I had the great benefit of being born to our particular parents, who are remarkable people uh, in very ordinary way, which is that they had a real love and commitment to one another and to us. And many families in exile uh, made different choices, understandable choices. Uh, So this is observation rather than commentary. And those choices meant that kids were shuttled back and forth, were put in camps while one parent was here and another parent was fighting there. And those choices had profound implications on those kids. And, 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 and once we were on the scene, my mother worked very hard to make sure that we were never parted. So we moved around a lot, but um, it was always, I always felt profoundly secure in my house uh, because my parents, uh, and my mother in particular, uh, that, was her, that was her one job for just getting us back to South Africa safe and sound and um, as sane as, you know, as you can try to raise kids.
2: You went and studied in the US. What did American students, some of whom aren't always aware of what goes on outside the borders of their country, uh, (laughs) what did they make of you?
1: Um, America was great. Uh, and it was great uh, in a way that uh, Donald Trump probably doesn't mean when he says it. Uh, I lived in America when Bill Clinton was the president. Of, he had just been elected. And it was a particular era. The LA riots had just happened. And so I'm always curious and interested that we have these conversations about Black Lives Matters and police brutality as though it's new. That was a very much live discussion at the time that I was a college student. America. I found that in African Americans I had a group of people who understood exactly what it felt like to live in exile. Uh, And so that that feeling of uh, being with people who knew what it meant to be uprooted and to not fully belong was very uh, a sincere and authentic connection. Uh, America is big, complicated, wonderful. Uh, but I always knew that it was not a place that I could stay. Uh, and of course, my, my whole objective was always getting back home to South Africa. So it was, it was great to live there in college, but it was, and it's certainly a place that I've continued to you know, have a, spend a lot of time in. Uh, but it's also a place, uh, unfortunately, that is going through its own particular moments of challenge. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs>
2: As as is South Africa.
1: As is South Africa. um, As is South Africa. I mean, despite the political challenges in South Africa, I find that it, um, and maybe this is about how we have to continue to have hope about certain things even when hope makes little sense. I mean, I think this is one of the conundrums of being human, right? That there, we have this desire to be hopeful uh, because without hope, you know, what do you do even in the face of pretty, you know, pretty clear evidence that there's little to be hopeful about. Uh, Climate change is a good example. Um, So in spite of all the evidence, to the contrary, I remain hopeful about South Africa because it's my North Star. It is the thing that has guided my entire life, this notion that there is a place in this world where black people and white people had this horrendous history, and somehow we were able to find one another. That idea that we, can, that we can still build a society that is just and fair, remains my political North Star, and I refuse to let that idea go. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I just wanna sit with that for a few seconds before my next question which is about the disillusion you went through after holding that hope post-apartheid. Can you you tell me about that?
1: So, you know, we come back, we live in this country, the arrogant exiles, you know, who think they have all the answers because they've been educated outside, have returned, and people at home who fought very hard and didn't have very many advantages are also there and were building this new society, and it was uh, for the first Five years under Mandela was an amazing time, and I remember I memorized all the cabinet ministers and all their portfolios, (laughs) because I was in my first job, and I was so excited. And there was something amazing about the fact that, um, you know, all these people that I had grown up with, and aunties and uncles, everyone had a job in cabinet. Uh, And so I had, and and I was just so proud of them. So it wasn't about access. It was about just being so proud of them and of us, that we were doing this thing that we had always said that we would do, you know, it's the fairy tale and it comes true. Uh, you know, I'm always fond of saying like, by the time I was 15, you know, my sisters and I, my parents would be like, you know, when we go home when we're free and we would just be rolling our eyes, like these two are crazy. that, that, that guy in Robin Allen is never getting out, you know, and then he did. Right. So, so it was this amazing feeling of the, 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 the fairy tale has come true. Um, and then we had a president who, uh, who, who was an AIDS denialist. Uh, so that, that was weird. Uh, and it was also like weird and going on too long and costing too many lives. And so I think my, my moment of disillusionment with, with South Africa, um, and disillusionment is probably the wrong word. My moment of disappointment in South Africa occurred... Uh, when we had a president who wouldn't listen to science or evidence or people, which has, I guess, in some ways, we were forerunners because, like, now everybody does that. Uh, <laughs> but he started early, <laughs> uh, and who was a very intelligent uh, human. I mean, Tabunbeke was a remarkably intelligent man, very erudite, very well-read, and wouldn't listen on this one particular issue. And so I had to work very hard to think about what's happening. What is this about? And what it was about was that arrogance that I like to speak about within the ruling party, which was this notion that you had to be that in order to fight for liberation. You had to have that trait. And then when ordinary times returned, then that became a trait that wasn't helpful in leadership. and so the dis- my disappointment with South Africa, um, I think, is a, has been a necessary part of becoming a citizen. Uh, people in New Zealand, people in Australia, people in all the countries that I visit understand very well that politicians are not heroes. They're politicians, right? That, and that you people have a very healthy relationship with your politicians. If you don't like them, you just change them. And in South Africa, our politicians are all people who fought for our freedom. So we feel somehow beholden to them. And this, I think, this shift in the last 15 years in our country, where they have just been like worse than ordinary people, is actually quite healthy for us to see them in that way and to begin to push back and to ask, Uh, questions and to demand accountability. So on the one hand, it like hasn't been fun. But on the other hand, it's been enormously important for strengthening our, our democracy and understanding what now the real work looks like towards fighting for equality and real justice.
2: Yeah. It seems to me that your family worked because it had the balance of your freedom fighting father and your accountant mother.
1: That's right. And
2: South Africa wound up with a whole lot of your dad in charge and none of your mum. That's
1: right. That's right. And somebody's got to turn on the lights. Um, uh, And then, of course, uh, not only just a whole lot of my dad but the one thing that I will say about my father, to this day, he remains a man of deep, deep personal integrity and someone who would never steal a cent. And unfortunately, we also got a bunch of those guys who are very busy, you know, eating (laughs) other people's uh, stuff. So that's that's part of the disappointment of South Africa.
2: I've been trying to avoid. I mean, I've been trying to put off talking about this book, but it feels like we keep edging around it. So let's let's talk about this and then come back to always another country. The it's this fallibility of heroes, isn't it? it? It is. Can can you? Give us a bit of context for why you wanted to write this book.
1: Sure. So Winnie Mandela uh, uh, died a year ago, uh, almost exactly a year ago, in April. And those of you who are familiar with uh, with the story of South Africa and with with, uh, the story of Winnie Mandela, many people have a very negative view of of Winnie Mandela. She sort of spun out of control in the mid-1980s, took up this rhetoric of violence, uh, and became a sort of spent... Spent character, a real someone who who was looked at with great disdain and scorn, and I wanted to revisit Winnie Mandela for a number of reasons. One is I didn't. We're having this conversation in South Africa about Nelson Mandela, about his legacy, who he was, uh, and often in that conversation, Nelson Mandela is held up as the hero, and Winnie Mandela is held up as the villain, and and I and I and I think that uh, the problems with that framing, uh, and it. And it is also clear that within South Africa, there's great admiration and respect from black people, uh, uh, by black people towards Winnie Mandela. And many, many white people uh, regard her with contempt uh, and, and have demonized her. So that, those, when you have two such extreme positions, I'm always really interested in understanding like what's up with that? How, how can we compatriots? see things so, in such fundamentally different ways. So she presents herself as a great opportunity to explore some of those underlying questions. Uh, and I, as I say in the book, I, I, I make no apologies for the fact that I am very interested in redeeming Winnie Mandela and bringing her back into the fold for a number of reasons. Um, so Winnie Mandela is loved by black people, much loved by black people in South Africa, because she represented every black family's experience. Her husband was taken away from her. Um, She uh, therefore becomes a single mother. She has two children. She's brutalized. She's treated to all kinds of indignities. And she becomes a hero to many black South Africans because in those years, she becomes his voice. She was fearless. She spoke back. She was also incredibly beautiful, which always helps with things. Uh, she was impeccably dressed and very stylish. So she has all these amazing traits that hold her up at a time when black people need inspiration and, and make her amazing. So she keeps his name in people's minds outside the country. She's also very, uh, even in her younger days when she was incredibly reser- uh, you know, well put together, she was also always very direct and eloquent in her outrage. Uh, and then by the 1980s, she takes up violence, This is a time in which South Africa becomes extremely violent, in which everyone is exercising violence. But because Winnie Mandela is a woman, her use and take up of that violence becomes something that's deeply problematic. Of course, she's also linked to Nelson Mandela, who at the time is a terrorist. So he is deeply associated with violence. We've erased this part of Nelson Mandela, right? He's the cuddly teddy bear Saint Mandela. And so when he comes out of jail, Nelson Mandela has a deep interest in remaking and reshaping his image as a man and a figure of peace. This is crucial because we will not move forward as a country if he doesn't do that. And Winnie Mandela is not on that page. Okay, she is radical. And she's not interested in that. So she becomes a political liability and she starts to flame out in lots of ways. So for me, this is fascinating. Uh, the last thing I'll say about, as, you know, to talk about this, to to explain why I'm interested in Winnie Mandela is because so much of the story of South Africa that many people around the world love is the story about forgiveness, yeah? That Nelson, that we are a country where black and white came together, and this is absolutely part of our story. Uh, And Mandela's role in this narrative is crucial, right? And and, uh, I'm trying to think about how to say this delicately so I don't offend the lovely white people Who are here listening to me.
2: We won't be offended.
1: Okay. So part of the issue of course with this narrative of forgiveness is it relies very heavily on the notion that Mandela forgives unconditionally and Mandela of course doesn't forgive white people unconditionally. What we need to do is manage white violence the specter and anxiety about white violence is significant. And this is why that narrative of forgiveness becomes very, very important. That's one of, one of the reasons. And so in furtherance of this, uh, the, Mandela is awarded a Nobel Prize at the same time as um, then-President F.W. de Klerk. I think many of you will remember this. So the two of them are awarded a Nobel Prize at the same time. Of course, during that very difficult period of negotiations, there were a number of massacres which black people were being killed under F.W. de Klerk's watch at the very same moment that negotiations are taking place. Mandela many times pulls the stop and says, we're not going to negotiate until you stop killing people. The Nobel Committee awards a joint prize to these two men, an issue around which many black South Africans continue to be deeply offended. And yet, the world and we cannot forgive Winnie Mandela for her sins? That is a fascinating hypocrisy to me. And so that's why I'm interested in redeeming Winnie Mandela. Because if we can't forgive women when they err, and yet we can forgive mass murderers, then I have real questions about what forgiveness means.
2: One, one of the surprises for me with the book is, is it's directly addressed to her, it's second person. Tell me about why you went that way.
1: I wanted to write to Winnie Mandela because I think people who do bad stuff, particularly when it involves like, killing people, uh, ought to be addressed directly. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to her. Uh, and I, I also wanted to uh, address her in, in, in that way because it's intimate. And so much of what has happened to Winnie Mandela is that she's vilified. So it is true on the one hand, uh, uh, it, it, multiple things can be true at the same time. So it can be true that I want, I want you to understand her and to be closer to her. And it is also true that she ought to be made accountable for her actions. So how do you do this? And as a writer, I think the choice to then address her directly draws you in uh, and it makes, you, makes her uncomfortable but it also makes you uncomfortable. It forces you to grapple with the complexity of what it is that she's done. Uh, and so it seemed like the best way to do that. It's also a very short book, and that you, that, that you voice is only possible to sustain in a short book. Otherwise, it gets really tiring, so, yeah.
2: Have, have you had any feedback from members of her family about it?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, they, that there was some, uh, they, it, it's it's, it's a hard book to um, categorise. So I say some tough things in here about her because that's important. Uh, and I say some very loving things about her, which is also important. I know a certain generation of her family. So it's, been an, it's an ongoing conversation. I think that's the most discreet, that's the best way to put it. Uh, a biographer has to live with her choices. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy with my, with my choices. Did you meet her? I never met her. Isn't that funny? I was supposed to meet her. Uh, she got sick and then we said, oh, there's always plenty of time. Uh, my sister knows, my, my young, youngest sister uh, knows, knew her very well and was uh, great friends with uh, the grandchildren. That's the generation. Uh, but I just never met her.
2: In yeah. the book you talk about, her accent, actions and choices as being not so very different than those of so many other freedom fighters. Yes. And yet she wound up wearing that. That's right. It's, part of that is that she was a, a woman and part of that is because of the hero-villain divide you discussed, but this, there's also elements in her character, aren't there, that you talk about in there?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, one of the the, the best parts of writing this book was doing the research on their letters because their letters to one another were beautiful and they had this incredible love affair. I mean, these two were really in love with one another and, um, you know, there's a point where he writes her this letter and he says, Dear Winnie, um, you know, I felt the sun sun on my face today and it reminded me of how I feel when you smile. Yeah? I mean, like, what a guy. Um, And... And she and she similarly, when she wrote to him, you could see that she was writing to him as her best self because she knew how much those letters meant to him. Uh, and and just to remind people, of course, you know, as he's he goes to he goes to prison and Winnie has two very they have two very small babies, and um, she's they're allowed to see each other once a year, so every six months for a 30-minute visit and they're not allowed to touch. So 21 years between when um, he gets put in prison and when they have their first contact visit. So they had this bulletproof, big thick glass and they would put their hands up like this and they would spend their visits talking to one another through that thick glass like that. And so, and yet despite that, you can feel how much they love one another, how much they yearn for one another. They really kept one another um, uh, going, which was quite um, remarkable. Winnie is then brutalized. She's um, kept, the lights are kept on for six days straight. She is beaten. She is tortured. Uh, A lot of terrible things happen to Winnie uh, in prison because of her association with Nelson Mandela. And she comes out of jail and she never wavers. She doesn't miss a beat. She doesn't stop and think, maybe I should just disavow him, which is what they were trying to get her to do. She doesn't, um, she doesn't break. And there's this lovely letter he writes to her and he says, my dearest Winnie, I've just been told what's happened to you. And as I write to you now, I know that you're in prison. And he said, and so from this moment, uh, I will no longer refer to you as my darling Winnie. This is the last letter in which I will call you my darling Winnie. From here on out, I will refer to you as Comrade Winnie. And it's such a beautiful uh, acknowledgement that they are equals in the struggle. So these two, the heart of, you know, So and so part of what I want to say is if you respect Nelson Mandela, as so many of us do, then surely he was not a fool. Uh, then you have to take very seriously what this relationship meant, this woman that he, he chose. Uh, he was married before, uh, and the woman who he left, Evelyn Massey, was a woman who didn't support his role in the freedom struggle. And when he found Winnie, and more importantly, when Winnie found him, because she chose him, let's be clear, uh, that it was a real meeting of the minds and a meeting of intellectual uh, and passionate equals in, in, in the struggle uh, for freedom. So Winnie's personality was very combative. She was very fiery. Uh, but she was also, um, uh, unfortunately, captured by people uh, who were often spies. You know, the, that, you know, the regime had, re- had reason to surround her with people who were going to bring her down and they succeeded and that was her weakness, yeah.
2: We're living at a time, I think, in both globally and in and many countries where we're looking for people like both her and him. And, you know, I wonder with your your head having been in these for so long, whether you think that that type of person is a particular type of person or whether we need to get to a point where the times create these people.
1: Yeah, I, I've been thinking about it a lot. My kids uh, are eight and 11 now, and um, the preoccupation of my, what, what worries me the most is climate change. Uh, uh, and, and so I took my kids to the climate strike, uh, the other day, to a few Fridays ago, uh, because they have it every month, and it was fascinating because there wasn't a single person who stood up uh, to speak who was over the age of 15. These are uh, marches that are entirely, uh, you know, organized and done by young people, uh, really young people, uh, and rightly so, because we're the ones who've messed it up, and so they have to fix it, and they correctly don't trust us. Um, And it was very interesting because when I was looking at the model of leadership, they held the microphone together and passed it to each other, right? They stood like, these two young women, they stood like this. And then um, we moved up the street and then uh, it was time for another sort of, you know, passing over petition and somebody else did it. And then there was this thing and somebody else did it and they passed the bullhorn around. And so it was a really interesting kind of networked model of leadership in a way that wouldn't have happened, I think, for my generation. Uh, and so I think, I think uh, you're right, that this ideas of heroes and villains is, is, is very destructive. Um, and new model, we need to think, really think about new models, which are in fact, of course, old models, right? That these are indigenous models of leadership. Um, and it's interesting being here in New Zealand, uh, at the session I was at just before this was the session with Chessie uh, Henry, who's just written this beautiful memoir, I bought it, uh, on, on her family. Uh, and as she was talking about the earthquakes, uh, I, th- I was thinking a lot about climate change uh, because this is a, the Murray, Murray River uh, uh, fish kills in Australia have been on top of people's minds. And so what is happening with the climate and the earth, I think, forces us all of us, to rethink what it means when you lose a place that you loved, right? And I think it forces us to think about questions of history and dispossession and land, yeah? It forces us to think that if, if this is how I feel because of what happened with an earthquake in my particular community in recent memory, what does it mean uh, I can un- begin to understand a fraction of what it might have meant for Maori people to lose their place? their land, their home, their places of safety. So I think um, we are living in a time at which many, many things are happening, which, which are crises, but which also call upon us to, to have more empathy rather than less, which help us to remember that how we feel is, a, is deeply connected to how other people have felt before us.
2: And we're also shifting from seeing climate change We're also shifting from seeing climate change as an environmental problem to a massive human rights issue as well.
1: Absolutely. Um,
2: And at the same time, we've got this global human rights issue and climate change, but all the same national problems are are occurring. And one thing we haven't discussed is the fact that you now watch South Africa from way across the oceans on the far edge of Australia. Tell me about that.
1: So my husband is Australian, and we uh, lived in South Africa, had our children in South Africa, and then this person tells me, "Oh, I miss home." I'm like, "What? You should have thought about that before you married me." <laughs> and Perth, <laughs> and he's from Perth. So, so to be fair, I, you know, I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so under great duress, I leave my North Star. And I'm living in Perth, and I'm constantly looking across the Indian Ocean, um, and it's sore. It's it's definitely like you know, there like the only way you can write a book is, um, for me, a memoir is when issues are resolved. So I like you know, I write from a place of my scars, not my wounds. So, but South Africa at the moment is very much an open wound. I'm like, I want to be. I'm not resolved about this. Um, and so we live in, we live in Australia, and I'm in South Africa a lot, uh, as much as I can. Uh, and it's, it's been interesting looking at it from a distance. Uh, and part of what's useful about looking at your place uh, from a distance is that you also have the lens of the new place where you stay. Uh, and so understanding you know, every country thinks it's exceptional. You know, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think we're special if we didn't think we were exceptional and how uh, living in Australia has allowed me to understand how actually unexceptional South Africa's story is. So we do have some characters, the Nelson Mandela's, the Winnie's, et cetera, et cetera. But the cleavages and the history and the questions about how you be fair to one another and what justice looks like, those are still very much live questions in the society in which I live. They are very much live questions in this society in New Zealand and, and they continue to be live questions in South Africa. So these are, uh, there's an interconnectedness about issues and, and, a, and so it's useful to be able to apply my brain to a wider sort of canvas, yeah.
2: And you're going back there this week.
1: I'll be in South Africa at the end of, at the end of this coming week, yeah.
2: Yeah, so, so tell me about that. You're, in what capacity are you going back and what event are you going back to?
1: I'm going back in my capacity as a South African. <laughs> 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 I'm interested. We've just had elections and there's uh, uh, President Ramaphosa who's been acting in the role of President already, but he's been, uh, he's been reinstalled. And so the inauguration will be happening, and so I'll be around for that. I've just done an anthology of queer stories uh, from across Africa. I, I was the um, chief editor on that collection of stories. Uh, and so I'm going to launch that on Africa Day, which is the 25th of May. I'll do some Winnie talks, so just handling some, some business. Check on my bank account, which is empty there.
2: <laughs> Are you feeling hopeful?
1: Um, so I live in... In hope, and that's because if you don't, what are you gonna do? Um, so it's not—it's not a, a hope. Uh, you know, Tana Coates, you know, talks about this treacly like you know, sense of hope, which um, I think is quite unhealthy. Uh, this notion that things are gonna get better because you just want them to get better, <laughs> which is ridiculous. So I don't—I don't live in that kind of hope. Um, but I do, uh, I am constantly scanning uh, the horizon, even in small conversations that I'm having with people, for signs uh, that, we will, that we can be okay. So that means, when I say I live in hope, I don't mean we will be okay, but the possibility exists that we can be okay. Yeah? And that's a really important distinction, because I think that's the kind of distinction that inspires action so if we can be okay then what are the things that we need to do to be okay is different from we will be okay because if you think we will be okay you don't need to act Uh, so so i think action towards justice has to be the the way forward and you can't plot a way forward unless you have some sense that things can be okay and that's maybe a diminished level but that's what i call hope
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.